Hello everyone, this is Matt Thrift, the producer here at Theology Doesn't Suck. Um, We just wanted to give you guys a heads up that right before the five minute mark of this episode, there is some strong language. So um, we just wanted everyone to be advised that if you are are sensitive to that type of language, um, that you could skip through that portion, or maybe if there's children around and you wouldn't want them to hear it, that you could skip that. So thank you guys. Enjoy the episode. Well, welcome back to yet another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck. As always, uh, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me is my beautiful co-host, Andy Herman. How's Hi, it going, Josh. Andy? I'm, I'm doing great. Um, thank you for the compliment. I, you know, uh, my my wife was saying I was getting a little chubby earlier today, so I really appreciate <laughs> the, the pick-me-up. <laughs> oh, right on, man. There you go. Yeah, I yeah. got you. You know. La- last night, my wife told me, Dan, there's a wrinkle... There's like a, uh, a ridge on your belly, but you're laying on your back. <laughs> oh, no. As if to say, I'd expect that if you were standing up and gravity were working, but you're on your back. <laughs> I was like, thank you for <laughs> telling me Thanks that. Thanks for the uh, heads up. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's no. That's great. <laughs> well, Josh, if we want to introduce our uh, – we have an unfamiliar voice on the podcast today. So yeah, I, sure. I don't know if you'd care to introduce our guests to the listeners. Sure. Yeah. So with us today, we have a, a pretty special guest. I'm excited about it. His name is Dan Koch. And so, uh, Dan, how are you doing, man? I'm good. I hope I didn't uh, keep you from saying whatever other stuff you needed to say. I just, it was too No, was I'm, too I'm glad you chimed in with that. In that with was good. Wife. <laughs> yeah, no, it's know. good, man. No, it's, it's perfect. And felt right. um, actually, you might you might uh, be interested in what I was going to uh, tell Andy about here. I saw something recently today on Facebook. A uh, uh, worship pastor buddy of mine posted. Um, there's apparently a church in Finland where so Finland has the largest percentage of like metal bands per capita. Like metal's huge in Finland, and so they That's have. Cool. It was a Lutheran church, and they have what they call metal mass. Where they do the typical liturgical service, but all of their hymns, which are still straight out of the Lutheran hymnal, are metal covers. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, what? I want to go to that church. <laughs> uh, is there a streaming YouTube Dude, there, channel? That is there my has question. To be. There That's has uh, to be. bizarre. I gotta find. I gotta. I gotta find that. And if I ever find myself in Finland, I gotta that is most definitely quite bizarre. I'm curious, <laughs> Josh, just because I have to know, uh, like, where do you know if this is this part of the state church? This Lutheran church is doing this. Like, do you know where they fall theologically? Because I'm really curious. Yeah. I, so I'm honestly, I'm not too sure. But I mean, the the videos. I mean, they were in very much like an extremely traditional setting, like big cathedral, huh. beautiful, very traditional, like beautiful pews amazing like artwork on the ceilings like all all of that Except that's interesting they had, you know they had their pastor in full robes and then the band was just like a bunch of dudes with like huge gauges and tattoos <laughs> oh, like shredding bizarre. hair metal style that is bizarre nuts. you know i listen i listen to <laughs> this podcast from a reformed baptist guy named james white he does a podcast oh, called the dividing line which okay. is like uh, anyway, he sometimes he does an he does a segment that he calls Radio Free Geneva, which is specifically when he's like dealing with Calvinism, okay. and uh, 
at before before that segment, every every time he plays a, like this super heavy metal version of the hymn "A Mighty Fortress <laughs> Is Our God," right and on. with with clips of like these like weird fundamentalist guys interspersed through the song. But I'm just wondering maybe if that recording comes to us from Finland. I don't know. <laughs> it could. <laughs> I'm starting well, there, to wonder. <laughs> there was a group. I don't know if you ever heard of them called uh, Becoming the Archetype, mm-hmm. and they put out a sick cover of "How Great Thou Art." Like I haven't heard it easily my favorite that's the version of that song i want to sing in church if we ever do it (laughs) (laughs) all right dan you are nodding your head are you are you a fan of that song or of that version of that song i'm not a huge metal guy i'm more of a punk and hardcore guy yeah i can respect that uh, i just want to walk out of a cathedral someday and be able to go dude that mass was fucking metal (laughs) i just want i want that experience one time i don't want to be lying when i say it that's funny dude well yeah (laughs) i'll have to throw out now dan you know uh if we don't get along on anything else today i i was also a hardcore kid here in albuquerque so we can at least get along (laughs) on that (laughs) all right cool yeah dude that's awesome well actually um Andy, I don't know if you know this, but Dan uh, was actually part of a group called uh, Sherwood, which mm-hmm. was kind of like an indie uh, rock band. It was pretty solid. Yeah, nice. Sweet. I call it emo pop. Emo pop. <laughs> I dig it. Yeah, I like to. I like to make fun of myself. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's, That's kind of like what uh, I think I heard. Uh, ah, it was either Matt or Toby describe Emery that way um, as well. Did emo they steal that from you? I don't know. They would. They usually say like po- post emo, uh, right emo on. core, or post hardcore or something. Sure. When I've heard them, yeah. I I just I like to go with the most. Uh, I don't know, embarrassing, but accurate <laughs> term. I, can. I dig it. I respect that. I nice. respect it fully. Good. That's Sweet. Good. All right, man. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and jump in. Forgive me if I uh, keep checking my phone. The Washington Capitals are playing the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins right now, and that's a big deal for me. I hope the Penguins win, Josh. I hope no, the you Penguins don't. Take, win. That's straight heresy, and you're going to hell. Um, so, it's and not very patriotic of you. That's, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a Colorado Avalanche fan to the core, so I, don't, I really have no dog in that fight. I just want to see Josh sad. Okay. Yeah. Do, yeah. You, do you care for hockey at all, Dan? I grew up with San Jose Sharks, but oh, I have fallen off in my adulthood. That's okay. fair. So, yeah, sweet. Not really. <laughs> Good. All right. All right, man. Well, uh, just uh, we'll go ahead and jump in, like I said, and and just for um, our listeners who might not be super familiar with you, Dan, could you just like tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, you know, just who are you and what do you do? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you have heard my name, it might be because of my involvement with like the Bad Christian Podcast Network. I've been on their show a bunch, and I have a few shows um, in various levels of activity that are on their network. Depolarize is one, Reconstruct is one, and the new one that's active right now is called You Have Permission. And uh, I'm a theology nerd. Um, I studied philosophy in undergrad, and I'm starting a PhD in psychology in the fall. Awesome. So I don't have a theology degree. I'm an amateur, but I just like it, and I have liked it since I was old enough to be able to think about it. I was raised in, I really, I realized this the other day, I was raised in a healthy ecumenical evangelical megachurch in California. Uh, and I don't think there are a ton of those, <laughs> but I was in one. It, w- it really was ecumenical. It had um, stripes of different denominations. It was formed before the non-denominational movement. It's actually an interdenominational church. It was like a hundred years old. Awesome. And it was a bunch of mainline churches that were small 
And they they combined and they hired this architect to build them a chapel in uh, Saratoga, California, which is now like a historical building in that, you know, like a registered historical building. It's beautiful. But um, so that's how I grew up. And I, I was not raised fundamentalist. Neither of my parents were fundamentalists. There were some fundamentalists kind of on the edges. I went to Christian junior high and high school. And uh, so that was a mix. There were sort of people, you know, that were more mainstream evangelical. And then there were people that were more conservative. And uh, that so that's kind of my faith upbringing. Okay. And then that, that brings us to, like, college, basically. And then I went to regular school, Cal Poly, and then I eventually finished up at United uh, University of Washington in Seattle. Um, and I did the band. I did Sherwood for eight years on the road and in the studio. And, uh, yeah, and now I podcast. And um, I, my areas of interest are basically, like, deconstruction and reconstruction and helping people find a way to think about their faith that will line up with their deep intuitions and also what the evidence they they think they are seeing in the modern world and the sciences social sciences um the, their own experience etc hmm. awesome so then did you have a kind of like since you're interested in the deconstruction reconstruction bit did you have a deconstruction experience yourself and kind of what did that look like yeah you know some people go all the way down to the bone you know they go all the way to atheism and, and they bounce back i never really went that far I, I had a very brief um few months where i wasn't considering myself a christian around like 19 or 20 but i think i was just really depressed sure um it, it, i didn't really have that well very well thought out uh but my so my deconstruction and reconstruction has been sort of ongoing it's it's kind of cyclical um for me the the issue that really was a catalyst for me was basically the canaanite genocide narratives in the Old Testament yeah, and sort of surrounding um, issues of what appear to be sort of moral egregiousness in the Old Testament. That was the catalyst for me to start thinking about, is the Bible inerrant and, and what am I expecting from these texts and what is the character of the God that I worship and are there different ways of thinking about this within the Christian tradition? And so from there, that led to me thinking about salvation as well, universalism and annihilationism, which I guess we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, so, and then, yeah, so then I guess it led to the text. And then once you start thinking about the text uh, straightforwardly, then that brings you to kind of everything else. And, and now <laughs> I guess my process these days is thinking through what I, what I think is what, what models of God make sense to me. Um, I, th I think a lot about um, direct experience of God through contemplative practice or, uh, I don't know, other, other ways that God communicates to people. And I think a lot about faith and science. Uh, and so, like, one of the questions I'm considering is, like, is it some kind of physicalism or materialism? Or are there, like, is there material that is non-material non <laughs> stuff in the world, supernatural? Or, or should the natural supernatural distinction be collapsed or is there no difference between the two um you know how and does god act in the world and how does god act in the world and what do we mean by act those are kind of some of the questions i'm wrestling with these days sweet awesome yeah that's great did uh when you did the uh the stuff with canaanite genocide did you ever get your hands on any uh pete ends when you were wrestling with yeah. that yeah i did i i came to him 
a bit later. So by the time I got to Pete Enns, it was like, oh, yeah, this guy is kind of pulling together a lot of the stuff that I had been thinking and had read before. But, of course, he's a very clear writer. <laughs> and so I, I found that really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I but so I it wasn't like he wasn't. I thought it was interesting. I'll put it this way. When I read The Bible Tells Me So, he leads the book with that issue. Yep. He's, that's like his main – that's in chapter one. And I was like, oh, that's funny because that was sort of like my chapter one of my process. But by that point, I had – it had been enough time that I recognized that and I had kind of come up with at least a couple different ways of thinking about it. Um, but, yeah, I think his work on that is is really is really quite great. Oh, sweet. Yeah, that I have a similar experience, and uh, that's why I asked because I know that's kind of how he led that book. And actually, yeah. uh, stay tuned because his latest book, uh, there is some speculation that Andy and I might be having a conversation around that. Uh, we can or cannot say at this time. But uh, we're with Pete. I I don't know. I mean, if you want to wow. interpret it that way, um, <laughs> we'll move on. But uh, yeah, so we're excited uh, about that. Um, and that's just a little special nugget for anybody who's listening. Um, <laughs> sweet. So Andy, before we uh, kind of jump into the topic today, did you have any questions you wanted to ask Dan? Um, uh, just biographically, just I guess. I just was curious. Um, what's your current like church involvement? Uh, what do you are you a member of a church yeah. or what what where do you align yourself these days i guess i was curious yeah so um <clears throat> we before we started recording you we mentioned you mentioned that you're in the pca my wife and i just left the pca church okay. uh, a couple months ago we were there for 10 years basically uh nine and a half for me ten and a half for her and it was uh theologically it was like about as far left as you get within the pca we had female deacons and we had a female community director who was kind of a pastor, but we didn't call her a pastor. Um, definitely not gay affirming. Uh, kind of the, the Tim Keller mm-hmm. school of yeah. PCA. If you, for your listeners, if you know Tim Keller. Um, and I, we were really quite comfortable there. Uh, neither my wife nor I have ever been theologically reformed. Mm-hmm. We have never identified that way. Not, not Calvinist. Um, no predestination. Definitely if we had to choose on the Arminian tack. And so, but it was just like a really great, healthy church with awesome people and great music and beautiful liturgy and good preaching. And we just stayed. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that we, the reason we finally left is that, uh, it became clearer to me that I was being called into more direct ministry. And in that context, I, my theology was too divergent and I couldn't be a deacon or an elder I um, I couldn't teach Sunday school for, to the junior hires and high schoolers yeah. because of my sexual ethic theology. And so it felt like it was time. Yeah. And so now we are – we're actually not looking at this moment because I'm actually using this break to put my ecumenical money where my ecumenical mouth is. <laughs> and I'm doing a little church tour of Seattle and – Taking notes, I'm going to make some episodes about it for You Have Permission. Oh, awesome. So I've been okay. to a multiracial evangelical service and a Quaker service so hmm. far. Okay. I listened to the episode like, about Quakerism today. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. So I it, it ties in a bit with that conversation with Phil. Um, and so I, I want to do like maybe five, six more of those, and then we will probably land at an Episcopal church. That's 
we love the liturgy. Uh, we we love the we love uh, having the Eucharist every week, um, but we are ready for a church that shares our uh, intuitions about scripture and sexuality and and gender and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Cool. Good to know. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Awesome. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about Christian universalism and then uh, some of the things that come from that. Uh, but prior to jumping in, Dan, I thought it might be helpful if you could, because uh, I think this is maybe a common mistake or a common misunderstanding. Uh, there's a difference between this idea of inclusivism and universalism. And um, I know that's something that I recently uh, have been taught, actually, you know, if I can admit it. It was during your podcast, um, <laughs> uh, but that was—that's why it's there. That was very helpful to me, and I was actually very surprised by some of the prominent names that uh, you dropped and gave examples of. So, can you make that distinction just uh, for our listeners? Because I know it was helpful for me. Yeah. So, universal salvation, Christian universalism, is the idea that some way or another, in the final analysis, everybody is saved. Um, that it's, now there's different views of that and we will get into this more. Um, there's kind of a purgatorial version of that. There's kind of like the, like the fluffy Duffy version <laughs> where you just die and you're all immediately there. Um, there's other, there's all kinds of different ways of thinking about it. Inclusivism does not say that inclusivism says the list of people who are saved is not identical to the list of people who identify themselves while they are alive as Christians. So it just simply says, of all the people that God saves, not all those people are Christians or consider themselves to be Christians more accurately. And so it basically leaves open some mechanism, and there's, of course, a number of ways of thinking of this as well, but there is some mechanism by which Christ's work can save people without them knowing (laughs) that Christ's work is saving them. Uh, The simplest way that I have found to talk about it is if you... If you believe that the cross is, to to use a popular analogy from the Four Spiritual Laws uh, handbook, if the cross is the bridge that that bridges the, the gulf between God and man, then you could say that someone can walk across a bridge without knowing what the bridge is composed of. Okay. That their knowledge of what kind of wood it's made out of has no bearing on whether or not that bridge will get them from one side to the other. Now, the person who does know what the bridge is made of is going to appreciate that bridge a lot more. They're going to appreciate its aesthetic beauty. They're going to be able to talk about where this tree came from and have some idea of the history of the construction of that bridge. But both people will get across the bridge. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that that would be one way of thinking of Christian inclusivism. Can I ask a follow-up question about inclusivism? Sure. Because uh, So that category honestly was new to me too until like – Josh sent me that episode that you did. Um, but so, so a question that I, I guess, and maybe I'm going to be honest. I only, I only got through part of the episode because I forgot about it. And then I listened to it earlier today. (laughs) Um, so if I have missed something that's in there, forgive me, but, uh, um, would you say that do inclusivists still believe that everyone who is saved is saved through faith in Christ? Meaning that like, if Christ's work is applied to them, is it still applied through faith or are they saying there's some other mechanism for applying Christ's work for salvation? My understanding is that there would be a divergence of opinion there. So some people believe in a kind of a purgatorial, you know, a second chance situation. 
this seems to be C.S. Lewis's view. I mean, The Great Divorce is, uh, it's a big analogy. Yeah. You know, it's kind of poetic, but it, it in its basic structure, narrative structure, includes another shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those people would then have a chance to accept Christ in whatever the next stage of conscious, you know, consciousness is okay. for people who die. Um, another view would be, no, there's no purgatory. There's no sort of in between, but Christ's work is so efficacious that it works no matter whether or not you, uh, you ever realize it. And so there might be for the inclusivist, that's not a universalist. They might say something like no. And and this is maybe more the John Wesley view is, uh, human beings respond to the light that is in them and where, where and when they are born will determine statistically how much access they have to Jesus of Nazareth uh, or the Christian creeds or whatever, the gospel being preached to them. But they have something. Everybody has something because, you know, even the rocks cry out. Like nature tells us something about God. The the law written on our heart, morality tells us something about God. Uh, I would add in that people who pray silently and contemplatively have similar experiences of God. And so people can follow that and God would count that as righteousness for them because it is the only thing that they have to respond to. And when they respond to it, God's like, great, thank you for (laughs) responding to it. You know, like, like if you knew about Jesus, you would accept Jesus, but no one is there to tell you you live in Indonesia in 500 BC, Hmm. something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there was also too, uh, I can't quite remember, um, which book it was from, but Lewis kind of had a way that, I mean, you guys articulated on the episode where he was talking about, um, I don't remember the specifics, but like the, the warrior in that one army, uh, yeah, do you know what I'm talking the about? The last book of Narnia. Yeah, correct. yeah. In the last battle, he's talking to this warrior from Tash's army and Tash is like the devil character in, in Narnia and Aslan is, is the Christ character. And, you know, Aslan is talking to the kid or the warrior. I mean, they're all kids. in Narnia. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the guy's like, I've been on the wrong team my whole life. And he's like, no, any any act of love you did in the name of Tash, you did actually for me. And any act of hatred that people do in my name, they actually do in the name of Tash. Mm-hmm. And so this is also kind of a Wesleyan thing that like, look, God knows the intentions of our hearts. And if the intention of a Muslim person uh, in, in, in particular, some particular moment is to genuinely love their neighbor, God gets that. And God understands that they were born in Iran and very unlikely to be a Christian at this point in their life. And, you know, you you can add it up. Gotcha. Sure. Sort of go down the list of all those things that are variables that people don't choose themselves that are essentially arbitrary. That's okay. So it's ha- something like that. So it sounds like from a reformed perspective, the difference, I mean, the fundamental difference might even be the nature of man. Because for, like from a, from a more reformed perspective, obviously I would say that none of us have good intentions unless God regenerates us and gives us faith in Christ anyway. Um, So I think that there's just a fundamental distinction there about like the nature of man and what our intentions are in the first place. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, with all due respect, I think that if you take that view, you have a very hard time explaining all the good that is done by people who don't have conscious regenerated yeah, faith in Christ. Yeah, we would put that in the bucket of common grace. Common yeah. grace, yes, I know. <laughs> that's, and common grace is sort of how you get out of it, but common grace sure looks a lot like grace in the in the actual world. And so I, I prefer to simplify that and say it's it's God. Anytime anyone 
loves someone else. They're, they're participating in God. Mm-hmm. And uh, Christ is a particularly clear expression of what God is like. And so do we, should we preach Christ? Should we know Christ? Yes, of course, because it's true. Uh, that's just a very different question from, is it a necessary condition for dealing with God? No, it's not, in my view. Awesome. Sweet. Sorry, sorry, sorry if I derailed us a little bit. So we were talking about inclusivism. No, that's why we're here. But then do yeah, we, do we want to contrast, I guess, just inclusivism in general with like universalism and what, what you would hold to more specifically? Sure. So, well, what we really need to do is we need to talk about universalism is is uh, really one of three options for the eternal destiny of human souls. You have uh, the traditional view, which is eternal conscious torment. You have uh, the middle view, which is called annihilationism. And then you have universal salvation. Have you guys gone through those three on previous episodes? We haven't done we- that on any of our episodes, no. Okay. So let's just do that real quick. Yeah. Here. So. Eternal conscious torment is uh, when you die, if you are not a Christian, or if you are, let's just say if you are not saved, uh, because somebody could, somebody could be any of these three and then also believe it's not all Christian. So sure. that's why I want to sort of, we're not talking inclusive versus universal. The reason that universalism can compare with so many various doctrines is that it's so all encompassing. Right. So okay. inclusivism versus universalism is who makes the cut. Right. In universalism versus annihilationism and eternal conscious torment is what happens after people do or don't make the cut. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's answering a different question. So eternal conscious torment is if you are not saved, then you are you suffer consciously forever in hell. Uh, annihilation is the view that if you are not saved, you cease to exist. For some annihilationists, that's immediate. When you die, you're gone which is sort of what atheists think happens. <laughs> and then some of them say, no, like sin must be punished. So there is some purgatorial state of, of suffering where you pay for your sins, which a just God re- would require. And then you are annihilated. You're snuffed out. And then universal salvation uh, in, in one of its many forms would say in the final analysis, nobody is annihilated and nobody is sent to hell, at least not permanently. So some universalists, do have a kind of a temporary hell or like a like a really shitty purgatory <laughs> where it's it's really unpleasant and you do pay for your sins but then once you've paid for them god willingly embraces you uh into god's self so that would be universal salvation those are the three any questions <laughs> so um you could you could be potentially you could be an inclusivist that is also a well, hold on. A universalist more than likely would be an inclusivist, but inclusivist wouldn't necessarily be a universalist. That's right. So so a universalist would have to be an inclusivist. Right. Uh, if they're a Christian universalist, they would need to say that Christ's death and resurrection saves everyone in the end. Yeah. Right. Now, we don't have to get into this, but if you think that there might be sentient life elsewhere in the universe, that <laughs> starts to become really interesting. Sure. Do, are there alien Christs? <laughs> Are there, you know what what I'm saying? Like, uh, how do other species that God communicates with and loves, uh, how do they, how do they get this stuff figured, sorted out between them and God? 
and and that's a, a topic I'm really interested in. But maybe we'll, let's put a pin in that. Yeah, we'll maybe we'll come back, back to that to later that in the episode. Yeah. So, so my question off the bat, I guess you would identify yourself as a universalist, right? I would say I can't prove universalism is true. I I can't prove it with theology, and I I definitely can't prove it with scripture. But it is the one that I think is most likely to be true of those three options. Okay, so so my uh, the big question in my mind. Um, which maybe you've thought about this some because it seems like this is falls into at least your categories of thought is um, in a universalist scheme, how is Christ's work applied for salvation? And this kind of goes back to the question I asked earlier too. I mean, maybe I'm just hu- I'm stuck on this, but uh, <laughs> obviously I would I would say from my perspective I would say uh, what I think the Scripture teaches is that Christ's salvation Christ's work is applied through faith. Right in Ephesians two it says we're saved by grace through faith. So faith is the instrument that God uses to apply Christ's work to us. Uh, so as a universalist, how would how would you say the saving work of Christ is applied to those who don't have faith? Well, uh, first of all, it's not clear they don't have faith. Okay. It's clear that they don't have belief yeah. in the same propositional truths or creedal statements. But first I'd want to distinguish between propositional belief and faith. Okay. Um, Abraham didn't have any of the same, very few of the same items of faith that I have, but his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Um, so, you know, I want to be careful not to, not to put enlightenment categories of disembodied minds ascribing propositional truth on to Paul, yeah. where Paul would not and, have thought that And way. to be fair, I do, I do agree with you that there's not necessarily... I can't load faith with a certain amount of propositional freight, like the thief on the cross, you know, obviously probably hadn't really thought through categories of atonement and, you know, (laughs) deity and things like that. For sure wasn't a Calvinist. But he had, (laughs) but he had saving (laughs) faith, um, which, which I would kind of view as, you know, seed form faith. And if it, as it grows, it would maybe accept certain propositions. But so, so if you say, if you would still say that Christ's work is applied through faith, that's fine too. But, just maybe more broadly, what would you say the mechanism uh, is that how is Christ's work applied to everybody? Yeah. Yeah. So this is maybe what we are getting at is more of an inclusivist thing, which is maybe the first step. You could say, look, if it is a seed form faith that if the thief on the cross had not been executed and hung out in Jerusalem and joined the church, <clears> then <throat> the thief on the cross would have grown in a bunch of you know, true beliefs about God. That's probably true. Yeah. You might say that someone who's born a Muslim in Indonesia and dies a Muslim in Indonesia doesn't really have much of an opportunity for their seed form faith to grow doctrinally because they simply don't have access to those doctrines. Yeah. And just because someone might drop a pamphlet uh, or a giant uh, Calvin's Institutes (laughs) in a big box on their front door and and say they could read English, even that's not the same thing as like being involved in a Christian community which is what I am able to do, yeah. right? So I'm able to soak in Christian community for my whole life. I live in the West. And so um, so that, that that's a good first step. In terms of how, so if faith is the mechanism, it just depends on what you think faith is. And I don't think that the Bible is univocal on what faith is. I think that the Bible gives us basically prisms through which we can understand the, the, the central concepts of our of our faith. And so... I would say if faith, I think of it as like accepting God's gift of salvation is something like that. While you're alive, 
that is necessarily combined with living a certain way. So this is James, you know, you say you have faith without works. I'll show you my faith, faith by my works, which is not, um, I don't like to take James as like the counter to Luther there, you know, whatever. I mean, maybe there's some tension there, but I just think he's saying like they're inextricably tied. Mm -hmm. There's no way there's no, in fact, I think that James is like a nice antidote to enlightenment thinking. (laughs) There's no way to think and believe something really and to have faith in something and have it not change you. Sure. You just have a belief, which the demons believe, right? We read elsewhere. Yep. So that's not faith. So if faith is sort of this reciprocal, like, thank you, yes, a yes to God's invitation in in the kind of way that actually affects our life, then the answer to how would that become affected on a universal model if, if that's what it means, then there would need to be some sort of post-mortem opportunity. So if you're right, uh, or if, let's say, for your own theological model, you feel really convinced that the mechanism on the human side needs to be faith, whether that is freely chosen under Arminian view or whether that is imputed to us uh, by God on a Calvinist view, uh, either way, if that's the mechanism, then you would just say, well, there must be some way that people have a chance for that after they die. Okay. Uh, but of course, faith is not the only, it's not the only model for how salvation is affected. In fact, it doesn't account for a lot of the ways that the Bible talks about salvation. Come, first thing that comes to mind is all the various times that entire households are saved mm. uh, through one person's faith. So that doesn't fit the model of an individual accepting Christ's sacrifice on their part. So I do think that salvation is a bigger and more wily issue in the text and in theological literature. Okay, so so you would say, so maybe you would disagree with the idea that faith is necessarily the mechanism through which salvation is, like through which Christ's work is applied. Yeah, I would say it's the most common one, okay. certainly within the Christian world. And I would also say if there is indeed a, something like a post-mortem opportunity, then that would be a perfectly good way of talking about it. But I want to be pretty humble when I start talking about the 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 specifics of what comes after biological death like, <laughs> i just i you know I, I think that we should be pretty humble i think we can as christians we can claim a certain hope uh, in god's goodness and we can claim the narrative of the biblical narrative from genesis to revelation which is that god's love and god's glory win in the end and you know that kind of a thing but when we're getting into the nitty-gritty of the mechanisms you know we're doing pretty serious theology and pretty serious Theology is, is speculative mm-hmm. because it, they're just hard questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then maybe if I can just lop, maybe this is a softball for you because you've probably answered this question a billion <laughs> times. Um, but I just want to throw it out there because I haven't heard you answer it. So, uh, so with passages in the Bible that seem to directly contradict universalism, um, and things that things that come to mind for me, obviously probably the verse you get thrown at you more than anything is John fourteen six. Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, and then things like in Revelation, uh, where where we're seeing the eternal city, the the new Jerusalem, and the Bible explicitly talks about there being uh, the sorcerers and the idolaters and the wicked outside of that city and things like mm-hmm. that. How how do you yeah. deal with things like that in Scripture? That um, or or why do you still hold to a universalist view, maybe tentatively? even though scripture contains things like that. Yeah. Well, 
my belief, and I, I think that this is empir- empirically verifiable, is that the Bible contains verses that on the face of it preach universalism, that preach annihilationism, and that preach eternal conscious torment. Uh, I think that in terms of the preponderance of the biblical evidence, actually that goes to annihilation. Most of the passages that people sort of, I think, often unthinkingly ascribe to a, a Dante vision of unending hell, if you actually look at the language, are like is like extinguishing type language, is being burned up. Things that are burned up don't keep burning. <laughs> I mean, this is an agricultural society in which these words are written. People know what fire does. It's true that in Gehenna, the actual trash heap outside of Jerusalem that fire kept burning, that's because they kept putting things into the fire. But any individual item that went into that fire did not continue burning forever. Because yep. it's carbon, carbon-based carbon life form, you know, whatever. That stuff eventually burns and it's just carbon. So, uh, I actually think the hardest thing for the universalist is not what you mentioned, but it is the fact that Jesus, in a couple spots, seems to believe in a final judgment, a separating of the sheep, yeah. sheeps and the goats, yeah. the wheat and the chaff. And... Um, for instance, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That That's no problem for the Christian universalist. They just simply say, yeah, Jesus is the way that everybody is saved. And we're not exactly sure when that happens. Maybe that happens after death. Okay. But it just means that, like, like for instance, if you take the Christus Victor atonement theory, which is the oldest Christian atonement theory, is the one you most you almost often find in the Church Fathers. The idea is penal substitution... Uh, as a theory, which is the Calvin's theory of choice, uh, is not going to be invented for another 1,200 years. No one's going to think of it. Uh, so during the this time where crisis victor is the dominating understanding, they say, look, there are the devil and evil and sin and death are in the world. Christ dies. He goes down to hell. He defeats them for all time, but we only see the beginning of that, and the culmination of that defeat will come at the end. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's true that God defeats forever sin and death then of course he's the way the truth and the life and no one gets to the father yeah except okay no one else defeated sin and death sure it was correct and i re- i realized you know I mean? as i asked that question that <laughs> even the two passages that i mentioned probably bring up different issues um yeah, so which is okay. so so yeah so maybe going more on the either the passages where jesus talks about separate like judgment um and eternal punishment or or in revelation where it talks about a judgment and punishment uh, people being thrown into the lake of fire, people being outside of the New Jerusalem, things like that. Yeah. Uh, what yep. would you do with imagery and, and ideas like that? It's a mystery. The Bible contains both. It certainly has those passages. It also has some of these passages. 1 Corinthians, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It has 1 Timothy, We trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. That's weird. Why didn't he just say the savior of all those that believe? Mm-hmm. So what we're getting to is the question of, of scriptural univocality or multivocality. Mm-hmm. Does the Bible speak with one voice on the question of who is saved or multiple voices? Uh, I, I used to think I had to decide. Uh, I used to think I had to assume that the Bible speaks with one voice on all important doctrinal issues. Yeah. And I no longer believe that's true. I think it speaks with multiple voices. So it's a matter of discernment. And uh, that's why, you know, and I, I, I do put more emphasis on the words of Jesus. Um, and so that's why those are the most troubling passages for me. And I guess I don't know. And this is why I say I can't prove universalism. 
I just believe it. But because there are these stubborn things in Jesus's teachings. And so one, one way you might interpret those teachings is that Jesus is not talking about uh, Jesus, mind you. Now, Revelation, you'd have to have another uh, hermeneutic for that. But for Jesus, that Jesus is not talking about uh, ultimate spiritual destination to heaven and hell. What Jesus is talking about is Jesus is trying to motivate how serious this stuff really is. Like you think Pharisees that you can just follow the rules and your children of Abraham and everything's going to go right for you. It's not, <laughs> it's serious. Like the, the stakes are eternal here. These are God's beloved and you are treating them like shit, you know, like, so I don't know that that's it, but that is one way of reading uh, Jesus because there are parables, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, he, it's not we're not literally sheep and goats, right? I mean, we're not going to transmorph into sheep's and goats, right? So that'd be kind of cool. It though. is a parable. <laughs> that'd be kind of cool. Would that be? So I don't know. You know, they, and then you have to get to theology, and then you have to just think about well, okay. So if various thinkers and theologians and critics have offered these various views, I have to discern which one makes sense to me and, and which one aligns with my experience of God and the church tradition and what I read in scripture. And, um, yeah. And, and, uh, you, you just kind of got to, yeah. you have to kind of choose and you have to hold it lightly because we don't know. And I think especially when you realize if you acknowledge, if you agree with me that scripture speaks with multiple voices, then you have to be humble and go, well, I'm, I'm aware that I'm choosing one of these multiple voices. You know, yeah, and I think I would I would probably fall in line with you and and say that uh, scripture speaks with multiple voices, and I very much would have like a Christocentric reading of scripture. I read everything through the lens of Jesus. I hold Jesus's words yeah. higher. I, Andy very much disagrees. I would like with to me. point out that <laughs> I would actually say that the Reformed are the ones who have the Christocentric reading of scripture. But but I do think I do think that uh, it does come down to, and I think this pops up in many theological issues, it does come down to a, a view or an understanding of what scripture is. Um, because yeah. ultimately with, with my understanding of what scripture is and my understanding of the divine authorship of scripture, I'm going to say that scripture is univocal rather than multivocal on these issues. And so, so that does, you're just going to have a, yeah. yeah. So, you'll, so you'll have to do some, some work then to mm -hmm. get some of those passages, you know, uh, to, to fit into that. Yeah. And that's fine. And, you know, of course, to each their own. For me, I've found that that is a, has been for me a fool's errand. Hmm. I'm not calling you a no, fool. No, I, I understand what you're a, saying. Yeah. <laughs> a, a colloquial phrase. It, it ends up being a waste of time. For, for me, I felt like it was because I just couldn't get it to fit. And uh, I think one of the best pieces of evidence for that, which Christian Smith uh, uses in his book, The Bible Made Impossible, is the, is the roughly 800 distinct Protestant denominational schools mm -hmm. now of course there are far more than 800 total denominations but that's about the different ways of reading the text there's like 800 ways of putting all this together and uh why can't we agree if we're all people of faith um if it does speak with one voice it should be a lot simpler to get it to agree with itself and yet we find almost infinite complexity yeah i mean i the thing i would probably disagree with some there i mean that i think that number can be misleading because on a lot of major issues, I think you would find a lot of those schools would agree, but but I do. I mean, yeah. I, I certainly can't uh, deny that there's diversity of interpretation within the church, and I, I think yeah. that uh, I think that that might may partially be because uh, different parts of the church 
might get certain things right that others don't, but also because obviously uh, we still deal with the effects of indwelling sin, and so we're not... Well, that's, so that's the reformed yeah. argument, is that sin affects our ability to even parse doctrine correctly and read the text in an illuminated way. Right. I find that to be a pretty uh, convenient argument, <laughs> um, and I'm not really sure how it can be verified, yeah. except for someone to say... Pretty sure I've got the right reading. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I don't, you know, like, how do you know that? It's basically just an article of faith, um, and that's fine, but that's not going to convince anybody because they, they, you can't point to any evidence for it. If, for instance, you said, well, look, Reformed Christians all agree on the 15 biggest doctrinal questions, but then they don't. <laughs> so that would be a nice piece of evidence that all the Reformed people They've got, but even a reformed person would say, well, no, it's not, it's not because you're reformed. It's like individual people have a clear reading based on the Holy Spirit in their lives. I get it. I I mean, I get it. I just find, um, I find the explanation, oh, it speaks with multiple voices, just simpler and and more convincing. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, right on. So, um, Andy, I, I can assume, well, I don't even have to assume you, you definitely fall more, more so into the camp of, uh, like a conscious eternal torment. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the idea of hell. Um, and for me, uh, I definitely, I guess I would more so fall into the annihilationist, uh, kind of camp, uh, reading or understanding Mm -hmm. of things. Um, my, (laughs) my thing is I like to call myself like a, almost like a hopeful universalist in the sense that, (laughs) Um, when I think about seriously, when I genuinely ponder the idea of eternal conscious torment and I feel like I understand it, uh, I don't wish that on anybody. Um, Mm -hmm. and so my struggle is, um, since, I mean, and it could just be, oh, that's, it's an emotional argument, whatever, but I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And so I'm a hopeful universalist because I like to say if, you know, once I get to heaven and I get to hang out with Jesus, if he's like, bro, I'm a universalist, I'm not going to be pissed off about it. Is kind of how I, how I would say it. Yeah. Yeah. Have, what do you think, Andy? I mean, <clears throat> to be totally honest, I wouldn't be mad if I tur- if it turned out I was wrong and like universalism was correct. Like, I'm not like I really wanted all those people to suffer <laughs> eternally. Like, sure, dang sure. it, yeah, all my yeah, fun yeah, is totally. spoiled. Um, I just don't like. I just don't think that's what the Bible teaches, and so. For, for right. me, it's not a matter of, like, I want all those other people to suffer because they didn't, like, do the Jesus work that I did. Right. It's just that's where I see yeah. scripture uh, teaching. Yeah, and Andy, <laughs> I, I respect that. I mean, I, I think that that's why most people hold this view is that they think that that's what scripture teaches. Or for a lot of people, they have no idea. They've never looked into it themselves. Yeah. But people that they trust have told them that this is what scripture teaches. And that's also reasonable for them to respond that way. Um, I think between torment and annihilationism that uh, people like Chris Date at the Rethinking Hell um, podcast and website have done incredible work Mm -hmm. to show that actually the the preponderance of scripture leans heavily toward annihilation and not eternal torment. But for me, the argument is a philosophical one. Um, And I'll just give it briefly. So the word just needs to mean something that corresponds more or less with what we generally think of as justice. And there's a couple ways of thinking of justice in the human sort of legal and ethical lexicon. The old school way is eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, Mm -hmm. retributive justice. Um, And for that, the punishment needs to fit the crime more or less. 
for it to be just. And this is true in, uh, you know, the Old Testament. It's true in the Code of Hammurabi. It's true in basically every legal code in the modern world. And then there is another view of justice, which is restorative justice, uh, which sometimes sometimes can replace retributive. Sometimes it's talking about different things. Uh, this is kind of becoming more popular, especially in criminal reform circles of like, hey, the point is not to just penalize everybody. It's actually to encourage them to be better so that they don't commit crimes again. If we want to go on either of these, I don't think you can square eternal conscious torment with either of those forms of justice. Certainly it's not retributive, or certainly it's not um, regenerative or restorative. Uh, it's permanent. There's no chance of them breaking the seal, so to speak, and coming up, uh, unless you take a C.S. Lewis approach, which would be a kind, which includes a kind of an inclusivism. Um, and then it's also not, uh, it's also not just on the uh, retributive justice model. It's, it's never an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, it's like uh, infinite eyes for an eye and infinite teeth for a teeth. If you believe it never ends, uh, then there is no amount of sin you could possibly commit in your finite life that would merit the amount of punishment that you receive. Now, if you take away conscious, if you say it's eternal torment, it's not conscious, well, then you might get it. And maybe eternal torment is just not being with God or it's, you know, some kind of state where you uh, it would it would basically lead to a kind of annihilation view, I think. But if it's conscious, then that's not just. And if it's not just, then the Bible is saying things about God that are either not true or they are so different from my understanding of the words as to be meaningless. And if that's the case, then I have a big, big defeater, what we call in philosophy, for believing what the Bible says about God. So I can't believe that God eternally consciously torments people and is just at the same time. And if I can't believe that, then I can't believe that God's loving. And actually the God I worship is a much different God than I thought he was. And so that for me is ultimately the argument against eternal conscious torment. You can get out of that by getting rid of eternal, getting rid of conscious, getting rid of torment, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, but if you have all three, I just, I don't see how it works. I, I can't see that God. And, and just to be clear, I'm not saying that God seems mean. <laughs> I'm saying that's not just. That's nothing like the word we have for justice. It sounds like the opposite of justice. It sounds like God is, loves tormenting people. <laughs> God is unjust sadist. It's, it's the opposite of just. So then why would I trust the Bible on other things it says about God? That's the argument. So, and I'm, I'm sure you've encountered this argument before, but um, when you say that that the punishment, if in a kernel, in eternal conscious torment, that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, that's not proportionate. Um, I'm sure you've encountered the argument which I would make, which is maybe you're just viewing the crime and with through too small of a lens, like you're not seeing the crime for what it is for the severity that it truly carries. Well, okay, but let's let's go down that path. So, how do you conceive of the consequences of, let's say, a murder? You kill a fifty-year-old man who would have lived to one hundred. You kill, you cut him down at exactly halfway of his life, yeah. uh, and then you turn fifty, and you would have turned, you would, let's say, would have gone to one hundred. How is there an 
any answer other than you ought to die at age 50. I mean, d where would you say, no, you probably should die at one month old so, so the, or one second old? So the difference <laughs> right? or the distinction that I would make that I've, I don't remember who I'm quoting here, but I know there's a quote that I'm at least <laughs> thinking of here, um, which is that the, like, the severity of sin is not on the basis of the crime committed, but on the person that the crime was committed against. Yeah. So this is Peter Abelard, I believe. Yeah. It might be Anselm, but I think it's Abelard. So this is scholastic Catholic theology, and the idea is that um, it's based on, and this is in my Atonement Theories episode with Bonnie Christian is my guest. She might um, also be making an appearance have, with us. <laughs> oh, we should totally have her. She's killer. Um, the This notion of punishment is should be about who it affects. This is based on medieval justice. Yeah. So in the medieval world, before our current concept of justice, which comes from the British uh, legal tradition, if somebody did the same crime would be punished differently based on the hierarchical position in society. So if a serf stole a king's deer, the serf is killed, of course. If an aristocrat or a, a lord steals a deer from the king, he's fined because the level between the serf and the king mm -hmm. is so high that if you sneeze at a king, <laughs> you're dead because you're so far below the king. Now, if you are a lord, well, you've got some social capital. You've got some economic power. You, there's a bit more give and take. You're not going to be uh, charged as much. Also, if a serf steals from a lord and not the king, the punishment will be lower. Now, we could say that we think God is like this, that we think that what God does is God's like, Sorry, man. I'm infinitely above you. You are scum compared to me. Anything you do to me, I should just do whatever I want back to you. The problem with that is passages like in Mark, Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. If you think that that in any way reflects what God is like, then you have a very hard time squaring that with this medieval justice understanding of, of justice. And I would say, I think the preponderance of scripture would say we have to reject that idea of justice. That's just not the God of the Bible. God is slow to anger. God wants people to repent. God desires all men to be saved, that they would have knowledge of him. Uh, that's just not, God is, God is not like that in scripture. And God's not like that in most Christians experience of God. And so it's an option, but I think it's a bad option. So, yeah, I guess, I guess where, where my mind goes there though, is that it seems like this whole, the, the philosophical rejection of eternal conscious torment is totally based on a definition of justice that is decided, I guess, maybe either socially or culturally, uh, rather than saying, okay, so the Bible teaches that God is just, the Bible teaches that this is what God does, therefore this is just. It's saying, okay, this is what I think justice is, and it yeah. doesn't square with what that teaching says, therefore that teaching is wrong. You know, I suppose that that argument might work if we had a verbally inspired Bible like the Quran or the Book of Mormon, <laughs> where we, because you need, you still need an argument, yeah. Andy, you need an argument as to why we should take the plain text of these verses, yeah. ignore the plain text of other verses that say other things about God that seem to contradict them, and that that needs to be our baseline bedrock hermeneutic for truth in the world yeah but that i don't think there's a good argument for that first of all scripture is compiled and written by the church it is the holy spirit 
guides the process of the canonization. There are disagreements. There are councils yep. that are held. There is debate going on. Like, there's never a moment where we just get the Bible dropped on us in gold letters. Yeah. That's just not true. That's how Muslims think of their text, and that's how Mormons think of their text. But that's never been how Christians think of their text. And so you if you say that, you're basically saying everything Augustine, Aquinas, Arrhenius, Calvin, Luther, any all these guys were actually just had their heads up their asses. <laughs> what they should have done is just read the text. That's what it is. Don't go around theologizing and philosophizing <laughs> because you're just wasting your well, time. Well, no, no. And to be consistent on <laughs> yeah. that, you're going to end up in a rough spot. I, no, and I should say I'm not saying that there's like one obvious teaching of the Bible necessarily in this area that you're rejecting. Fun, I'm yeah. having some fun with but, you a little but bit. But <laughs> I would I would say I, that my my big issue is I guess maybe with the criteria of the philosophical judgment in the first place, which is where you're getting sure. your definition of justice from in the first place. That's why I tried to draw as big of a circle around justice as they possibly could. It could be retributive. It could be restorative. It could be any number of these things. But on all of those, it looks nothing like infinite punishment for finite crime. Mm -hmm. It just uh, none of them look like that. So you might find a version and you found it. It's Abelardian medieval justice. That's the one idea of justice that no one believes anymore. And then if you, you have to ask, well, why does no one believe it anymore? And you have two choices, maybe. One is the devil has convinced us of a more liberal kind of justice that's not God's. <laughs> yeah. Or the Holy Spirit is a part of the Human Rights Conven Geneva Convention. I mean, I think the yeah. Holy Spirit's a part of well, that. Well, and so that you it, if any if any nation on earth tried to enact Abelardian justice, it would be a human rights violation and every civilized country in the world would say you have to stop doing that. Now, we have to ask ourselves, is God a part of that? Or is or would God be like, I know you guys are trying to be nice and all, but that's actually how it works. In the <laughs> well, and well, they so really do have it right in this. So dictatorship. the reason I think that that concept of this Abelardian justice applies or makes sense with humans and God, um, but I would still actually disagree with it when applied just to like different categories of humans mm -hmm. um, yeah. is because I, I don't think that the I think the Bible teaches pretty clearly that all humans are of equal worth and value. And whereas hu humans yeah. and God are not. And so I see a di there's a difference between distinguishing between sure. classes of humans and God and humans. Yeah. Of course. I mean, God is like, I mean, in, in that, of course, I agree with you in the, the general claim that God is so far above yeah. us. This is why we have to have theological and intellectual humility. I'm just saying if you if you're looking for evidence that the way that God conceives of God's own honor and justice is like the Abelardian thing. Well, then I actually don't think there's. Yeah, you can find some scripture, but there's not much. I actually think it was a way for Abelard to make sense of the conscious torment texts in light of current day juridical thinking, yeah. which he did very well. And it did convince people in his day, but it doesn't convince us now. And so actually you you were trying to talk about it as if it's a straight reading of the text, but it's not. It's like it's a scholastic medieval interpretation of the text based on the way that courts worked at that time and place. Mm. And so that doesn't sound very universal to me in terms of, I don't think I need to abide by that. I don't live then. That's not how we think about justice now. Uh, so anyway, I ramble. <laughs> Sweet. Now, so I'm going to take, this is a bit of a, it's still on topic, but it's different than what we've been speaking of. Uh, most recently, a question that I'm kind of surprised, Andy, maybe you didn't ask. Um, so within the realm of universalism, when it comes to things like the, the great commission, 
um, like, you know, yeah. how do you reconcile that or, or what does that look like? Would you still want to tell people about Jesus or like, what's, what's that look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. I still do. Um, I think there's a really good question of what's the most effective way to tell people about Jesus. And that's basically why, uh, Christian colleges and seminaries have missiology departments <laughs> is to answer that question is how do you effectively communicate God's love to people who are not in your tradition? Uh, that is a complicated question. I think there's a lot of, especially evangelicals, who want to say that's a very simple question. And I think treating it like a simple question leads to things like John Chow being killed on North Sentinel <laughs> sure. Island. And, and possibly making things much, much worse for millions of already persecuted Indian Christians in that country by breaking that law. Uh, or many laws that he broke to do that. And I know that's a complex situation. I have an episode about it with more nuance. But um, so... Of course, uh, yes. I mean, I I think that the the foundational truth of the universe is that God loves mm-hmm. us. I mean, that's that's the purpose of everything. And um, I think that the thing about the Great Commission, I love Dallas Willard's line. He calls it the, what we do with the Great Commission, the Great O mission. Right. So the Great Commission says, "Go and make disciples." Now, anybody reading that at the time would have known what was meant by disciples. It is what the disciples did who followed Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They lived a certain way. They received his teaching. They tried to enact the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they they lived with a common purse. Uh, you know, they didn't own anything. Um, there, There is a discipleship for me is becoming like Christ. Mm-hmm. It is It is being formed to the image of Christ to the most that you can in your life. Uh, the other thing is converts. And usually when we talk about the Great Commission, we're talking about making converts, which is to say getting people to accept the gospel, right. believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's a different word than disciples. Sure. And it's a particularly enlightenment-affected uh, post-Reformation understanding of disciples that makes everything about our brain and what propositions and which confession do we ascribe to and what's our position on this doctrinal issue and i just don't think that that is a good reading of that text sure so can i pop in a question that do you think disciples necessarily are converts in in your understanding Hmm. that's a really good question that's a really good question (laughs) i would say this i am personally much more interested in people who are committed to living in the way of jesus than i am in people who are committed to figuring out how exactly the hypostatic union of the second person of the Trinity and Jesus of Nazareth works. <laughs> um, to, to give an sure. example, um, even though I am interested because <laughs> in I'm a nerd, but I'm more interested in people living like Christ and, 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 br- and bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth or, or manifesting it as it is already here among us, as Jesus tells us. So if you're doing that, the question is, so for me, excuse me, for me, somebody can follow Christ without being a Christian in their own mind. Mm-hmm. That seems clear. The question is, once they're doing that, are they also a convert in some meaningful sense? And I would say that that is a difficult question, but there's a lot of stuff in Christ's own teaching that would point to yes. So you've got the sheep and the goats, which we mentioned earlier. And what is it? What is the criteria 
do you remember in that parable for the people who say we thought we, uh, we yeah he's talking name. about people prophesying in the name and in in a yeah it's either in the same parable or in a similar parable he talks about people who gave him a cup of water to drink and invited him in and things like that yeah uh <clears throat> the, it, this is where we get the least of these mm-hmm, right? yeah for the people who are like we didn't think we were sheep we don't know you he said uh anytime you clothed the naked or fed the hungry you did that. Anything for the least of these you did unto me. Right. So Jesus, in multiple parables, you're right to point out, Andy, that it's in more than one place that he makes this distinction of like the the sort of outward religious acts versus the acts of mercy mm-hmm. in the real world toward the poor. And so I would say probably if I had to put money on it, but I don't know if somebody is conformed to the image of Christ in a significant way in their life, then they are a convert. At least by, at least by the rubric of those parables, mm-hmm. we can say. But since we've established that the Bible is not universal <laughs> on this, I don't stuff, know if we've established. We, you know, that. <laughs> well, since I have explained that I believe that, that I have to leave some room there. Um, you know, personally, mm-hmm. right on. Awesome. Well, I think we're um, we're probably nearing our time limit. Unfortunately, I feel like we could go on for a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I can go another five or six minutes if you guys have another question. Do you have any burning questions, up. Josh? Um. Uh, well, hmm. I think maybe something that that might be more uh, helpful with our time is what like so people that want to explore these kind of things that you're talking about, Dan. Uh, what resources? Uh, would you recommend for them that they would that they would check out uh, that they would look into what's been helpful to you uh, what would you recommend aside from you have permission because that's what I would recommend so you can't take my answer which is Dan's podcast for those who don't know <laughs> which is the show yeah yeah um, well if you're if you, I would say if you are interested in annihilationism especially uh, the conversation between annihilationism and eternal com- conscious torment rethinking hell is the best resource that I'm Sweet. aware of. And I, you know, I, for instance, listened to an episode where Chris Date, he lives down the street from me in Seattle. He's like 35. He went head to head with Albert Moeller on Unbelievable. Oh, dang. He's the president of Southern Baptist <laughs> wow. Seminary. And I thought that Chris uh, was much more impressive wow. in, his, in his work than Moeller. <laughs> um, and it's so he's a, he's a really smart guy. And they have a whole group of scholars who are doing really good work. And so that's that would be great. I think if you're just like, if this is really an introduction to universalism, there's a documentary called um, Hellbound, question mark. Okay, Hellbound. That's kind of like a fun, popular introduction. And then uh, I just heard this the other day that it's available for pre-order now. It's not out yet. But the Eastern Orthodox theologian David Bentley oh, is releasing his big universalism defense Yeah, book. I'm going to purchase that. So that. that'll <laughs> probably be the new, that'll probably be the new gold standard, I, I would guess, because he's... He's really one of the clearest delineators of that um, doctrine. But, you know, you can Google it. Uh, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. Mm. That's a book that a lot of people tell me about. I sort of stopped reading. Universalism was like my topic in the mid-2000s that I was really right on. interested in. And so I'm not totally up on the stuff that's come out the last 12 to 15 years. Um, but those those are those are some things. You could put those in the show. Sweet. Awesome. Thanks for the recommendations. Yeah, have you have you yeah. got your hands on uh, Richard Rohr's latest book, The Universal Christ? No, I haven't. Do you, uh, are you a I fan of Rohr? My, my, I'm a pretty, I'm a fan of Rohr. I I'm a, I would say I'm a fan of like eighty percent of what Rohr does. Probably, um, I really would like to uh, live like he lives. I, I'd like to have that kind of quiet peace. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think he's a much better man <laughs> than I am. Um, 
I think that he's not for everyone. Sure. sure. Like I don't. For instance, I don't think a reformed person is going to be too convinced by his cosmic Christ. No. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he just doesn't. He doesn't lean on. Yeah. Right. He doesn't lean on scripture enough. Now, in my own personal life, I think there's something to be said for experience being placed uh, higher up in the hierarchy, and and he argues for that, and I find that convincing, especially as I think about interfaith stuff, and I think about kind of um, when I think of the human story through an evolutionary lens, it becomes really interesting to think about the fact that there are all these different manifestations of the religious impulse, and what does that say about how God created people? And for, so for some of that stuff, I think experience uh, is really is worth kind of for that question. It's worth really putting at the top because you can't uh, just arbitrarily choose one of the texts sure. to talk about that. But, um, you know, I think if you find yourself, if you're a contemplative bent, then, yeah, Richard Rohr is good. Uh, but in terms of someone who's who's going to want some more biblical stuff, I, I think the other things I mentioned would probably right, be right. Almost definitely. Sweet. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And Andy, do you want to yeah, give your... Sure. General Spiel. Yeah, well, yeah, first I just <laughs> wanted to say thank you, Dan. I, I enjoyed talking with you. Um, so thanks for... Are you going to give us a quick altar call? Oh, no, no. Yeah, my general spiel the, is the just like the gospel. info at the end of the podcast. I always do like the little, all the info. But I, first I wanted to say thank you oh, for joining sure. us and thanks for putting up with me pestering you. And uh, <laughs> I enjoyed talking with oh, you. I enjoy it, man. It's it's all good. No, I, I actually thought uh, you were quite respectful um, Good. I have That's the goal. Debated with people, debated with people in your camp, and had uh, much, much worse experiences. <laughs> this was pure joy. Yeah, right. I was, I was right. like, I'm to gonna tell, yeah. tell Andy that he's uh, one of the few reformed people that I met that wasn't a, didn't treat me like a complete idiot. And wasn't a douchebag towards me, so I really appreciate that about Andy. And I'm not—that's not a slight at reformed yeah. people. But that's just been my experience. <laughs> so I'm thank gonna you, put Andy. that You're Dan though cool. on my uh, on my personal like review board. I'll put I've had worse experiences in quotes. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, I really enjoy it. And, and you know, reconstruct, which is my other theology yeah. podcast yeah. that I co-host. Uh, John Rain's my co-host. He's reformed. Okay. So. I, I'm I'm perfectly happy to toss this stuff around awesome. with people. And we went to a Reformed church for 10 years, as I said. So Awesome. You know, it's all good. Great, awesome. Well, well, thanks for joining us. Um, so that's Dan Koch. You host the uh, – now the name is escaping you me. Have but you have You have permission. permission is the name of your podcast. Yeah. Um, so yeah. go ahead and check that out if you, uh, if you enjoyed this. And uh, thank you so much for listening. If you've stuck with us through this, we hope you got a lot out of this episode and enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully we'll have some links to those things that Dan mentioned in the show notes. Um, other than that, you can check out past episodes, blog posts, uh, or you can contact us on our website, theologydoesn'tsuck.com, through the contact us page, believe it or not. And uh, we also have an Instagram, which is at theologydoesn'tsuck. We have a Twitter now, which I just what? created recently. We have four followers, so pretty We're exciting stuff. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> So the Twitter name is Theology Doesn't Suck, but I think right now, like, the username might be, like, at doesn't suck or something like that. I haven't figured out how to yeah, change it yet. I'll, I'll work on that, yeah. Right Eventually, on. it'll be at Theology Doesn't Suck, unless that's taken, which I don't imagine it is. Um, we also recently created a Facebook discussion group, so you can look us up on there, Theology Doesn't Suck discussion group. Uh, check that out. That's just a place to discuss recent episodes and toss around ideas. Um other than that, we have some exciting guests coming up, so stay tuned, as Josh kind of hinted at earlier in the show. <laughs> uh, but um, am I missing anything, Josh? Anything else important? 
No, I think you I think you did a great job. And again, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'll have to have, have you on again. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. I really, this is a fun chat. Awesome. All right. Well, until next week, um, read the Westminster Confession. <laughs> Go Caps. <laughs>